pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you are with us in this time. And we pause now to ask for your help, knowing that prayer actually is communicating with you. And that there is a God in heaven who is our Father who listens. And so we ask for your help. I pray that you would help me to stand in the righteousness of Christ alone. And pray that your spirit would help the words that come out of my mouth, that it would hug tightly to your word. That these would not be the opinions of man, but these would be what they are, the words of God. And I pray for all who are gathered here, who have ears to hear, that even now that you might open their eyes and open their hearts to receive a good word from you. You have food for their souls today. You have encouragement for their hearts. You have healing for their beings. And I pray that you would minister all of that in more ways than I am able right now by your help and Holy Spirit. Draw us to yourself. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, A Praying Life, the author, a man named Paul Miller, opens the book with a story of going camping with five out of his six children. And he said that he was walking to his minivan when he saw his young teenage daughter standing paralyzed, tense, and quite upset. And he went over to her and asked her what was wrong, and she explained to him that she had lost one of her contact lenses. Now, they were in the middle of the forest, and so he looked down, and it's the woods, and there's a million rocks and pebbles and twigs and leaves and a thousand cracks and crevices where this little contact lens could have fallen. And so in that moment, he tells his daughter, Ashley, Ashley, don't move. Let's pray. And he said that simple, innocent, innocuous sentence brought forth from his daughter this burst of tears, and his 14-year-old daughter said, why bother What will it do? I prayed for God to let Kim speak, and he's never answered me. Now, in the story, he goes on to explain that Kim is her eight-year-old younger sister. And Kim had been diagnosed with autism and developmental delay and was not able to speak. She was mute. And the family tried speech therapy and everything they could do year after year. And yet, after all their attempts and all their efforts and all their prayers, Kim still couldn't speak. And so the author said that when his daughter let out that flood of tears and expressed sort of the cynicism in her own heart, it said it sort of gave voice to all the doubts he had had about prayer all along. And so in the chapter, he begins to outline some questions that he wrestled with when it came to prayer. Questions like, does prayer make any difference at all? Right? Were you going to find that contact lens if you prayed in a way that you wouldn't have found it if you didn't pray? Uh, Or questions like, why is prayer so hard to begin with? If you've been around Christian folks or religious folks or church folks, one of the common things we say is, I'll be praying for you. I'll, I'll pray for that. We say that as automatically as God bless you. And we probably don't think about either phrase. Why is it that we mean well when we say, I'll be praying for you, and so often we never get around to actually doing it? Why is prayer so hard? And what does it mean for God to hear prayer? Or what does it mean for God to speak to us through prayer? In every other conversation you and I have, it's a two-way thing. What does it mean to talk to a God who is spirit, who never talks back? How do you hear from God in prayer? And why pray if God already knows? If before a word is on your tongue, God knows it well, then why bother bringing up those words on your tongue? With that and probably a hundred other questions, Paul Miller said he stood there as his daughter's question gave voice to his own questions. And he was almost paralyzed in that moment. 
Because if he prayed and they didn't find the contact lens, would it just confirm what his daughter had already begun to believe about God? Or, or should he pray? And so he said in that moment, he whispered under his own breath a quick prayer to the Lord that said, Father, if there's ever a time for you to hear this prayer, it would be right now for Ashley's sake and for her faith's sake. And he mustered up from his mouth the best words he could, which was, Father, please help us to find this contact lens. They finished praying, and wouldn't you know, they looked down, and on a leaf is a tiny contact lens. And he said, prayer made a difference after all. Now, that story itself hooked me for the rest of the book. That story hooked me because that man had the courage to articulate probably so many of the things that were going on in my own heart. So many of my own questions and wrestlings and struggles and difficulties when it comes to prayer. And friends, if you're here like me and you struggle with prayer, if at times you'd be honest enough to say prayer is hard, it's difficult, I'm not really sure what I'm doing, even if I were to sit with them, I'm not sure what I should be saying. If at all you've struggled with prayer, then you would agree with me, we could use all the help we could get when it comes to prayer. And this morning, I want you to know, God wants to help you. It is a good thing for you to know that God wants to help you with prayer this morning. And who better for us to get help from than Jesus himself? You know, it's interesting. When you read the New Testament and the Gospels, you'll find that the disciples are around Jesus all his life. And so Jesus is performing miracles, and yet you never hear the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to perform miracles like you perform. Or Jesus preaches all the time, and yet you never hear the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to preach as you preach. And yet there's something about the way Jesus prayed that was so different, that was so attractive to them that you find the disciples going to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And you think of that. These are probably men who from the age they were little boys had grown up learning to pray, and yet they saw something in Jesus that made them say, Lord, teach us to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, the passage that Melvin led us in reading through, Jesus wants to help his disciples, including us, even now, here and today, with prayer. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, I'm surprised I'm even in church. I'm not the praying type or the religious type or the spiritual type. I want you to hear, no matter who you are, there is a sense in which all of us want to connect with something bigger than ourselves. I mean, if you just read editorials and magazines, you'll see that all the craze of the day is meditation or yoga or positive thinking or connecting with a force that's bigger than ourselves. All of us have this yearning to connect with something bigger beyond us. And I would say, the scriptures here are going to say, what you're missing is prayer. And Jesus wants to teach you how to connect with something bigger than yourself, how to communicate with God. And to do that, he's going to start by telling us two ways we ought not to pray before offering us some help and a framework for how we ought to pray. Hear that again. Jesus is going to start by telling us two ways not to pray and then offer us a framework, some help for how we ought to pray. The first thing he starts with is how you ought not to pray. And the first of those two ways is we ought not to pray like hypocrites. We ought not to pray like religious hypocrites. Now again, if you're new to Christianity or just checking out the church and Jesus, 
It, it might be that you have often thought religion is full of hypocrites. And it might surprise you to know that Jesus would agree. Jesus would agree with you that religion is full of hypocrites. Except where you might be tempted to throw out the baby with the bathwater, Jesus would say the solution then is not to throw out religion, it's to throw out hypocrisy. And so Jesus will say, don't be a hypocrite. In fact, that's what you find in verse 5. Verse 5 says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now pause for a second. If you've been following with us or tracking with us over these weeks, you'll remember that Jesus in this section of his famous Sermon on the Mount is in a section where he's going after the tendency of religious people to do religious things in order to put on a religious show. That's what he's going after. So if you remember last week, if you were here with us, you remember how Jesus went after generous George with his trumpets parading around his generosity for all to see. If you'll stick with us next week, you'll see how Jesus goes after those who fast and do so in such a way that everyone might know what they're doing. Well, here, as Jesus is talking about praying, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And what's he saying? He's saying, don't be like that woman, that girl who loves to pray. Oh, she's a woman of prayer. If you're in churchy Christianese language, she's a prayer warrior. And she loves to pray, especially when there's people around. She loves to pray, especially when there's people around, maybe even only when there's people around. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. So you can almost picture what Jesus is painting here. He's picturing the hypocrite. And what does he do? He finds his way at just the right time to a busy intersection just when it happens to be the daily hour of prayer. So imagine you're in Jerusalem. Maybe there's a call to prayer that goes out in the streets. And wouldn't you know, he's timed this just right to end up at a busy intersection in the middle of the market while everyone's shopping for vegetables and bargaining for their meat and doing whatever, carrying on the affairs of the day. He times it perfectly so he just so happens to enter the intersection at the time of prayer. And then while everyone's bustling around, he looks left and he looks right and he makes sure there's a good crowd around him and he throws up his arms in the middle of the street and begins to say, Oh God, Oh Lord, Father in heaven, and on and on his eloquent prayer begins to go. You see him? He times it just right to have maximal attention and draws everyone to him and begins to pray. You can picture him there, lifting up his arms in the middle of the busy market. As everyone else is carrying out their busy, normal daily affairs, everyone pauses to look at him and how pious he is, how spiritual he is. You almost feel guilty standing there with your groceries. You were just carrying on the affairs of the day, but this man paused in the middle of the street. It doesn't matter who sees him. He's not ashamed. In fact, quite the opposite. The more people, the better. And what a pious, spiritual man he is. As these great, eloquent words come out of his mouth. It's about people just like that. That Jesus once quoted the prophet Isaiah and said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Right? It was, it was thinking about men and women just like that, that Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And friends, hear me. Jesus is not just talking about the religious show-offs and their tendency back then. He's talking about us even now and our tendency to do the same. The desire that you and I can often have to do even something like prayer in such a way that is for an audience of those who will hear. Tell me, have you never been tempted to pray a prayer in such a way that would be accepted and impressive by everyone around you? Man, our hearts are so twisted. It can get down to you think through tone, you think through words, you think through the fervency of the prayer, you even plan the pauses to get maximal effect. I mean, you'd do anything for just someone to say yes in the middle of your prayer. Like your entire identity and worth and value hang on someone saying amen. Or you'll, you'll do anything for the slightest groan of agreement. And if you can pull off the trifecta, mmm, yes, amen. <laughs> you'd give half your kingdom for the trifecta. Jesus is talking about us and our tendency to do that. What twisted hearts we tend to have. We take a moment that is for God and about God and towards God and somehow find a way to make it about us. We are glory thieves. We steal the stage. When I think of this, you remember when Kanye West jumped into the stage when Taylor Swift was getting that award? I don't remember the song she got the award for. I don't even remember the show or the event or the award. But all I remember is Kanye West. Her moment, her award, everyone should have been thinking about her forever will think about Kanye West. And the Bible's saying that's what you and I tend to do. We jump onto the stage and onto the spotlight, this moment that should be about God, and we somehow find a way to make it about us. Our fervency, our faithfulness, our eloquence, our pauses, our prayers. Jesus comes and says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be like the hypocrite. They love to stand in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. And Jesus says, if you want to know where your heart is, how you're doing with this, in fact, one of the best ways to examine a litmus test, a gauge for how you're doing with this, is to examine your prayer life not in public, but in private. You want to know how you're doing with prayer, how you're actually doing? Don't examine it by how you pray in front of other people. Examine it by how you pray when no one's watching, when no one's around. In fact, you hear him in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, hear me. The point is not that we should never pray in public or have corporate prayer. In fact, in just a few verses, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, you'll notice that all the pronouns are plural. Our Father, give us this day our bread. Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. All the pronouns have in mind that we're going to often be praying together, corporately, publicly, with one another. So the point is not, make no mistake about it, Jesus is against somehow corporate or public prayer. That's not the point. But the point is, are you someone in public that you are not in private? Is there something about your public spirituality 
that does not correspond to the reality of your personal, private, hidden spirituality. Because the truth is, what you are in private is what you really are. Hear me again. What you are in private is what you really are. That's the litmus test. Because in every other discipline, when we witness to someone else or we sing in church, we can find a way, even deceive ourselves, manipulate this so that we are putting on a show. But there is something about the litmus test of your private, hidden, secret prayer life that gauges what you really are. And Jesus' question for us is, he'd call you by name right now and say, son, daughter, listen, I'm talking to you by name. If you have this faithful, fervent, passionate, intimate prayer life in the times when you pray in front of other people and yet your private, personal, hidden prayer life is basically non-existent, something is off. If it has been days or weeks or months since you have in the secret place where no one sees spoken to God, something is off. And if the Spirit of God right now is sitting on your heart, my heart, don't wiggle out of it. Don't justify it. Don't excuse it. Own that. The only way forward with Christ is to own that, to confess that, to acknowledge that. And Jesus, in fact, is both correcting you, yes, but even now he's inviting you. He's actually giving you a wonderful invitation that says, if you'll take this right now, it could be the most freeing thing in your prayer life. Stop pretending. You don't have to do that anymore. In fact, the real God would love to meet the real you, even today, at some point. Hear me. It's actually a wonderful invitation. Sure, there's a sting to it. But it's a, it's a sting that's meant to heal you and help you. And so even today is the invitation that says, you don't have to put on a show anymore. Not one more hour. You can stop pretending with your pious pretenses. And what God would love more than anything is before you put your head to the pillow tonight, find five minutes somewhere today and let the real you meet the real God so that you could go to God and go, God, I don't have a real heart or love for you or whatever it may be. I'm really anxious. I'm really angry. Whatever the real you is, let that encounter the real God. It is the most freeing invitation in the world. Go to your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees and knows the real you, not the public version. What you are in private is what you really are. He will meet you right there. And he'll reward you. In fact, one of the rewards is he'll give you more of himself. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. But he gives us one more way we ought not to pray. And that is, don't pray like the Pharisees who pretend to know God. But also, don't swing to the other end where you pray to, like the pagans who don't know God. Right? Next, he says, don't swing from praying like the Pharisees to praying like the pagans. Right? Don't, don't pray like religious, phony, Bible Belt folks. But also, don't pray like New Age Oprah spirituality either. Don't, don't swing from one end to the other. Don't, don't turn this into, well, you just got to get in touch with the universe or send out positive thoughts and receive good energy and flow and whatever else, and there's some kind of nebulous force out there we don't know and we've got to somehow find a way to connect with. Because Jesus in verse 7 will say, and when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Those are the people who don't know God, the pagans. Don't pray heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here's the picture. Jesus is saying, don't be like the religious guy in the street corner who's putting on a show. But also, don't be like the pagan guy who doesn't know what God is really like. So picture this pagan, this perhaps one of the pantheon of gods. There's so many deities out there. And if, if you're one of the Gentiles, you don't really know what the god or goddess is actually like. So what's your prayer life going to be if you're a Gentile? You're not sure what that god's mood is at any given moment. Or what that goddess's disposition towards you is at that precise moment. And so you do everything you can to somehow win their favor through your prayers. Whether that's many incantations or hour-long prayers or whatever it is, you just do something to somehow win the favor of these gods. The gods always need pacifying. And you're never quite sure exactly what the formula is that will pacify the gods. And so you throw out everything you can think of. One of my favorite pictures of this is actually in the Bible, in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 18, there's this story where there's this one prophet of Israel named Elijah. And then you've got 850 prophets of these false gods, Baal and Asherah and all the rest. And so they decide to have this showdown. They're going to have a contest right in the middle. And what they're going to do is they're going to figure out whose god is the real god. And so if you know the story, what happens is Elijah comes and 450 of these other prophets come and they, they, they decide they're going to have this contest. They build these two altars, they sacrifice two bulls on top, and the contest is whosoever God sends down fire is the true God. In fact, listen to this, 1 Kings 18 verse 24. Elijah says, you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And it sounds great to everybody, Okay. And so Elijah is a gentleman, and he goes, you go first. And so the prophets of Baal go first. Listen to this, because it's one of the best just pictures of this. Verse 26. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Verse 27, and this is one of my favorite parts of the story. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or is he relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Do you hear that? That's prophetic trash talk, is what it is. Because <laughs> Elijah is literally going, Call louder, because obviously your god's there. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's on the can. That's literally what he says. He's relieving himself. Maybe he's on the can. Maybe he's just preoccupied right now. you got to call out louder. Maybe he's taking a nap or he went out on a trip. you got to scream, get his attention somehow. And so that's exactly what they do. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Don't you love that? There was no one in the heavens to who they were speaking to. By the way, if you keep reading the story, when they're done and they finally are exhausted and worn out and they have no more blood left because they've cut themselves, they've cried, they've jumped around, they've limped, they've cried out from morning till noon. Elijah goes, you done? They go, we're done. 
And Elijah goes, this is, the odds aren't enough. So he says, I need you to throw some water on my side. And they pour bucket after bucket after bucket just to make sure this thing can't light up. And then he prays a prayer, and I read it a bunch of times. It may take 20 seconds, maybe 22 seconds. They prayed from morning till noon. He prays for about 20 seconds. Fire consumes the whole thing. And Jesus comes and says, do not be like the Gentiles who think that there's somebody in heaven and if we formulate just the right words and pray for just long enough, maybe we can win his heart towards us. Maybe if we string together just the right perfect prayer with just the right words and right pitch and right fervency and right length, then maybe we can get the attention of the deity in heaven to actually care about us or answer us. Do not be like the Gentiles. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Listen to me. How would your prayer life change if you actually believed there was a God in heaven who was for you, whose disposition was towards you, and who knows what you need before you even ask Him? Again, I want to say there's some correction here, but this is also an invitation. That if you take Jesus at this right now, it could be the most freeing thing in your prayer life ever. And the freeing thing is you don't have to find the perfect words. You don't have to find the perfect length as if there's some magic formula to prayer that could unlock heaven. As if you could just hang in there long enough or say just the right words to get the Father's ear to be inclined towards you. Because Jesus is saying it is inclined towards you. You have a Father in heaven who knows your needs before you ask him. Do you know how freeing that is? Have you ever been around a parent of a newborn? If you hang with a parent of a newborn, what you begin to see as the weeks and months progress is they know this new child so well, they can even distinguish between their cries. Have you ever heard that? Right? A a baby will cry, you're sitting in the living room, and then the mom will say something like, no, 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 she's not hungry, she just needs to be changed. And you go, how did you know that? Right? They know the child so intimately, they can know the cry that is they want to be picked up versus the cry that they're hungry versus the cry that, that they need to be changed. They just know so well to the point they don't have to articulate a word. A good parent can even distinguish between the slightest cry. And the scriptures here are saying, you have a father who can know your groan. Just, you can't even formulate the words in your mouth. Well, he can understand a sigh. Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. If you'll take Jesus at his word, what a freeing thing that would be for your prayer life, even today, to know you don't have to pray like the holiest guy you know with just the right amount of words. Your father is in heaven. His heart is for you. He's not on a journey He's not deep in thought. He's not distracted as if you've got to carry out the right kind of formula. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. So then, having told us how we ought not to pray, Jesus gives us a framework to how to pray. Now hear me. Preachers have taken each line of this prayer and preached a whole sermon on it. And you could. I just want to draw your attention to one thing. Because having told us not to pray like the pagans or the Pharisees, like the hypocrites or the people who don't know God, Jesus is going to give us just a framework. 
It's a scaffold, essentially, on which we can build our own prayers. It's often been called the Lord's Prayer. It's probably one of the most famous things in the English language. Perhaps nothing has been recited by people more than the Lord's Prayer. It's familiar to us. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a framework by which to pray. The tragedy is so often we can mouth these words in the exact way Jesus just finished telling us not to, heaping up empty phrases that don't mean anything. But if you'll pause and hear these words again, Jesus is giving you a framework for prayer. Let me just make one observation and then I want to draw you to one point. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, you'll see that it begins with a concern for God. Right? Our our Father is in heaven, hallowed be His name. Let His kingdom come. Let His will be done. That's helpful. It's helpful and instructive to us to know your prayers too should have a concern that begins with God before they devolve into a grocery list of your desires, right? It's your name should be hallowed. That is a concern from a citizen of Jesus' kingdom that says, I would love for my king's name to be revered and made much of and known. I would love for your kingdom to be coming on this earth and your will to be done all over the place. It's a good and convicting prayer for us. Because if you pray it, you'll begin to say, I often live my life wanting my kingdom and my will to be done. You know when you're frustrated in traffic? Why isn't everyone just moving? I have somewhere to go. It's because I want my kingdom and my will to be done. I'm standing in Walmart yesterday. The guy won't talk to me for 10 minutes. I just need to ask him where something is. And as I'm boiling in frustration, I'm reminded it's because I need my kingdom and my will to be done. You parents that bark at your kids, so often it's not in loving correction of them. It's because they keep frustrating my kingdom and my will in my home being done. And yet the prayer is pushing us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life and on this earth as it is done even now in heaven. And then it moves from there, having a concern for God, to being able to give out your petitions to God. Right? A petition for his provision. Give us this day our daily bread. A petition for his forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A petition for protection. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. There is something wonderful even there, instructive there. That is that we should concern ourselves with the praise of God and then consider the petitions towards God. Right? Because I want you to hear something. There is something about thinking about who God is. Adoration, as this prayer starts, that is good and healing for our hearts. Right? When you start by getting a good vision of who God is, it changes your prayer life. I heard this one preacher say he had this woman come up to him who said that for the bulk of her life, all her prayers was just a laundry list of what she needed God to do. She was frustrated. She was annoyed because so much wasn't done. She was not joyful. She said somewhere along the way she switched so that she tried one day that 80% of her prayer time should just be getting right with who God is, adoring Him, worshiping Him. She said it made all the difference in the world. Her testimony was essentially this, that once she actually spent time reflecting on God is sovereign, 
Oh, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is powerful. Nothing is limited by him. God is good. His heart is actually for me. God is wise. In every circumstance, he plans the most perfect thing. Then when it came to petition, she could just go, here. Since you're good and wise and powerful and great and your heart is for me, here. She, she didn't have to labor over a petition. She could present it to this God. She had just spent a great deal of time adoring. There's this secret part of all of our hearts that thinks God is out to get us. God is always holding back good from us. God is out to do us no good. And adoration of God and who he is can heal even that part. But here's the one thing I want you to hear from what Jesus taught us to pray. It's just the very first line. If there's one thing I'd have you take home from the Lord's Prayer, it's the opening words. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Seven Mile Road, hear me. If you get that one thing, I promise you, because of God's scriptures, it can revolutionize your entire prayer life. If you get that one thing of what it means to actually call God our Father, it can change everything about your prayer life. That that one reality governs your entire prayer life. A pastor named Tim Keller said it this way. He said, if your prayer life is boring, if it's bland, if it's insipid, if it's lifeless, if there's no prayer fire in your prayer life or in your life in general, it's because you haven't got yet what it means to say, our Father. He said, in so much as you understand that, so your life and prayer life will deepen. Think of this. We're praying to our Father in heaven. Now, I'm glad he adds the words in heaven, right? To remind us, this God is in the heavens. He's above us. He's other. He's different. He's holy. He's worthy of awe and reverence and worship. His will should be done. His kingdom should come. His name should be hallowed. He is in heaven. But if God is just a king in heaven or a God in heaven, prayer doesn't work. Prayer only works when you get that the God who is in heaven is our Father. Our Father. Think of that. The transcendent being above all beings is Dad. Jesus used this word in the Aramaic, Abba, which is basically our Papa or Dada. Right? That, that's what he says. He says, this is the term I use, and you are free from now on to address him the same way. That the God who is in heaven is your Papa. That when you're praying to him, you're praying to Dad. And what a wondrous thought it would be that the most powerful, majestic being in the universe is Papa. And you have unlimited access to him. Prayer is the invitation that the most powerful being is your Papa, your dad, and you have unlimited access to him. Just think of that. Some months ago, Binu and I were invited by some Asian pastors to the White House. Okay, Now, we tried to keep cool, like, yeah, we got an invitation to the White House. No big deal. I, we were giddy like schoolgirls, right? I went and bought a suit. It was, it was like we were getting ready for prom all over again. Like, I bought shoes. We were going to the, we told our parents, and honestly, in our parents, it's like, oh, these useless sons have finally made it, right? <laughs> we got an invitation to the White House. So we got ready. We went early that morning or the night before. We pull up to the White House. 
We get to the gate. You got security badges and clearance and God knows what uh, personnel in the government needs to clear you. And, and so we get in. We go up this ramp. We take a left. We're brought into this building. We get into a room. And then that's it. We got into the building next to the White House. <laughs> it's the administrative building of the White House, so technically you're in the White House. I mean, till then, we honestly were trying to fend off questions from our wives and friends like, yeah, I don't know if we'll get a selfie with the president, but probably, I mean, it, it might happen. We'll at least meet him, we'll shake his hands probably. We're trying to play this cool. We got to the building next to the White House. And we got to meet with the most lower level staff in Washington, D.C., but we got this paper that said White House briefing. That's the closest we got. I can't, that's the closest an audience with the president I will ever get. Uh, you and I can't get an audience with the mayor of the city. And the God of the universe says, Come and call me Papa. The God of the universe says, Abba, just call me what Jesus did and come to me like Jesus did and speak your mind like Jesus does because as I see my son, so I now see you. To the degree that you get what it means to call God Father, so will change your prayer life. Could it not today free you to actually go into the room, shut the door and pray to your Father in secret and make no pretenses you know why? Father is there. Papa's there. When my kid, I'm a dad now. My kids make no pretenses to come to me. They, they wet the bed. They come with wet pants to me. They come with all their questions. They interrupt me while I speak. They have nothing in them that feels like they got to clean themselves up, get right, and then come. They just come as they are. And if a sinful man knows how to do that to kids... Your Father in heaven is waiting in the secret closet to meet with you. No pretenses. The only version of you he's interested in is the real you. I have no interest whatsoever in a fake Hannah or a fake Micah. I have no desire for them to clean themselves up or act proper. I just want the real them. Because I'm a papa. I know what that's like. Your Father is waiting to meet with you five minutes today, ten minutes today, in a secret place with the real you to meet with Papa. Could it not free you today for you to be able to go to him with no eloquent words, not thinking that if you pray many words, then you will be heard, but your slightest groan, your little sigh, whatever words you can muster up and stammer up and stutter up, he knows how to distinguish them, hear them, because before a word is on your tongue, your father knows it well, right? I, I know that because I'm a papa, I remember I remember when Hannah was learning words. You remember how our kids can communicate before they even learn words? Hannah knew that she wanted TV. She didn't know how to say TV or the remote. She would go like that. <laughs> I remember, I'm not making this up. I remember going to a friend's house and Hannah was going <laughs> and they're like, what does she want? I'm like, she wants the TV on. Do not be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases or think that they will be heard for their many words. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. If a sinful man can learn to distinguish my daughter's click, then your father is waiting for whatever words come out of your mouth and he can hear the heart.
What an invitation you have from God even today. And hear me, Jesus died to make all of this possible. I want you to just think of that. The only reason you and I can even get out the first words of the Lord's Prayer is because Jesus died for us. Do you know that? The Bible tells us that you and I were enemies of God. And yet Jesus Christ, God's natural son, his only begotten son, died to take enemies and adopt them into the family of God so that now we who are enemies are actually the children of God. And the father does not treat his adopted children different than his natural children. And so because Jesus died and because he rose again and because he shed his blood for us, we can cry out with Jesus, our father. Do you know when Jesus rose again, he went to his disciples and he said, I'm going to my God and your God. And then he said, I'm going to my father and your father. You know that? He looked at his disciples, having finished the work of death and resurrection, he said, you know where I'm going? I'm going now to my God and your God, my father and your father. Because Jesus died, we can utter together the words, our father. So, Seven Mile Road, receive today Jesus' invitation to pray. Let's finish by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I'll say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Each week, the Lord